discovery is said to be an accident meeting a prepared mind. But every story behind a discovery is different. Perhaps the idea is conceived in a light bulb moment or a brainstorming session or captured in scribblings on the back of a napkin. Here, we introduce you to scientific pioneers taking you beyond their publication and into Innovation Corner to hear the untold stories behind their discoveries. This podcast is brought to you by Biotechni, and I'm your host, Alex Maloney. Our guest today is Professor Alessio Chilli from the University of Dundee, and we actually recorded this episode from a brand new facility Alessio has founded called the Center for Targeted Protein Degradation. And in case you're not familiar with this, don't worry, as Alessio does a fantastic job of explaining this modality early on in the episode. And I feel incredibly lucky to be here as this facility is something that has been built around Alessio's passion and enthusiasm for what he does with like-minded people that are focused on a goal of expediting discovery and development and translation of these protein degraders or Protex, as you'll hear them called, into the clinic. Now there's already around 15 of these Protax in the clinic, which is remarkable considering the idea only really began to gain traction around a decade ago. And it's a moment that Alessio was instrumental in as he teamed up with Professor Craig Cruz from Yale University to make the first small molecule Protax that recruited an E3 ligase called VHL. And we discussed this moment in the episode. Alessio's passion and enthusiasm uh, and talent for what he does is incredibly stimulating and speaks to his enormous success. And I could see that he really takes great pleasure in sharing his success with those around him and really aims to inspire innovation and motivate scientists to go on and do great things. And I think that's why you're going to see some fantastic work coming from this facility. I noticed while in Alessio's office that he had a sign on his desk that his team had given to him. And it said, the man, the myth, the protein degrader. I think that's a fantastic way to start this episode off. So welcome to Back of the Napkin. Alessio Chili, welcome to Back of the Napkin podcast. It's uh, great to have you have you here and on uh, yeah on the show. Thank you for having me here. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity. So I've got three thank yous to say before we start. The first one is thank you for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast. The second one is thank you for uh, having me here at the new Centre for Targeted Protein Degradation in Dundee. And the third is for having me to come up with the name for this podcast. So uh, Back of the Napkin, as it kind of suggests, is about the moments where people come up with great ideas and sometimes they want to capture these and often the closest thing is a, is a napkin. And <laughs> I heard some great stories about you being out for dinner and writing down your ideas on napkins. So that was very much uh, yeah, why I decided to go with the name Back of the Napkin. So I like that. Yeah, good, good. Okay, so let's lay some foundations then for your career in science. And let's go back to the beginning. And mm -hmm. so how did you get into science? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I get asked that question more and more. And, uh, and, and I think my love for science has always been, um, you know, the curiosity of uh, learning how things work, understanding uh, how how things work, what's behind what we see, what we touch, the matter that surrounds us. 
us as human beings. And that was one of the motivations for me to study chemistry um, because I always felt that with chemistry, I could always go deep into that fundamental understanding of structure, how things look like, how, how things work. Um, and uh, I actually don't think as a, as a kid, I wanted to be a scientist. When I was asked that question, I remember I used to tell, uh, I used to answer uh, that I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose it's because my dad used to work, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a newspaper. And so I, 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 had, a, I had that uh, close, close to home. Um, but, uh, but, but I, I guess it traces back to uh, when I got excited uh, with chemistry and, I, and my parents bought me a piccolo chimico, a li the little chemist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so this, uh, you know, uh, uh, big box with uh, lots of different salts and lots of different uh, uh, things that you could do and mix. And uh, Did you have the lab coat as well? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I might not remember that. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but, uh, but it was all done by health and safety standards yeah. uh, uh, while at home. So... Uh, uh, yeah, so that, that's that's what got me excited about uh, uh, seeing something new, seeing seeing transformations, and trying to understand how things work. Mm -hmm. And then, when you were at school, was was chemistry like this subject that you you just kind of had a connection with? Was this was this your favorite subject at school? Yeah, uh, interesting. Again, uh, the answer is no. My favorite subject was maths. Uh -huh. Uh, it, it always was maths and it continued to be. Um, and uh, we'd only study chemistry later on uh, in the high school. Um, of course, we studied it as well in, in, the, uh, in the middle school. But, um, uh, but at the level that I got excited was mainly, namely in high school. And I'd already sort of studied it on my own. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you did some secret classes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just, you know, I was reading reading it all about by myself but no it wasn't it was maps yeah mm. so when did the decision come to move into chemistry did you study chemistry at university at university yes yeah. and my mom still um uh, sort of um uh, uh, kind of blames me for that or at least uh, uh regrets <laughs> not regrets that decision but at least uh, reminds me of how peculiarly i chose that because um, she wanted me to do engineering, okay. Um, because you know, in her mind, that's where uh, there were there were more job opportunities, and uh, and of course, my love for maths and for creating things that way seemed a natural choice to do engineering. And in a way, I suppose in my scientific career, I've always liked to create and engineer things, but doing it using chemistry. But then in the end, I decided to do chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you were at the University of Florence. Yeah, so Florence. Yeah, correct. Mm -hmm. And you must have liked it then deciding to go on and do a PhD. Yes. In... Yes. I mean, absolutely. Um, I, 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 in Florence, uh, you had to choose already the subject. And then in the first few years, you were still doing maths, you were still doing physics, you were still doing computing, you weren't just doing chemistry. And so there was that element of breadth that I still liked to keep. Mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, uh, yes, the different aspects and facets of chemistry kept inspiring me and, and motivating me to learn more. And I think it was also a very inspiring teacher. Um, 
so my first teacher at, at university on general and organic chemistry, Professor Ivano Bertini, um, a, a great scientist and um, uh, the late uh, Ivano Bertini. And then that motivated me to join his group to do my thesis. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think... I think ultimately we underestimate the value of our teachers and, yeah. uh, and uh, the people that, that, that teach us and they're very influential, I think, to our, to our career path. And that very much shaped ultimately the kind of science that I ended up getting excited about. And what what was this science? What were you working on, Ivana? With yeah, so when I when I joined um, uh, his group, so he uh, at the time was the director of uh, what is already there a center for magnetic resonance in Florence, mm -hmm. a very big institute. Uh, it's always had some of the uh, largest and the most advanced NMR spectrometers uh, in the world. And um, and so I still remember Ivano was telling me how he was excited and interested to get into ligand screening into proteins, which uh, you know was a future for NMR at the time was the late 1990s, early 2000s, mm. and um, how he wanted me to do it with a calculator uh, and then validate it experimentally. So that inspired me and got me into into the field, which then uh, hooked me into study fragment-based drug design and then um, go to Cambridge and, and do my PhD there. Yeah. There was a pretty landmark publication that came out around this time. There's a Stephen Fezzik, um, Saab, yeah. Saab by NMR. Correct. Was this something that you had yes. seen and inspired you? Yes, absolutely. So so those, those papers uh, were very much like the Bible for me. Mm -hmm. It was amazing work. and. Um, uh, and I read every bit of it, and uh, and, and it inspired me to um, to learn more about the field and to understand how to do those kind of experiments and to think about how small molecules bind to proteins. Absolutely, yeah. uh, there was a landmark paper in Science published in 1996. But actually, perhaps the uh, the two most influential papers for me at the time were uh, uh, two back-to-back -back papers in JAXA. Um, I think from shortly after, I don't remember the year now, maybe 99, um, where Steve and his team at, at the time at Abbott were targeting a protein called stromelizing, mm -hmm. uh, also MMP3. Uh, and my thesis with Ivano was to look at matrix metalloproteinases, MMPs, so it was spot on Perfect. relevant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, right. So talk me through the next chapter then, um, which I believe is you moving over to the UK to to Cambridge to do your PhD. So how did, how did this happen? Yeah, so um, so I had already spent a year in Cambridge as an Erasmus student. I was very fortunate um, that the University of Florence had a, a program, an Erasmus program agreement with the University of Cambridge, and I was um, very lucky that uh, myself and two friends of mine um, got into this program. And so we spent a year during our fourth year, uh, that was 99, 2000, um, uh, studying in Cambridge. And so I loved every bit of it. I loved the environment. I loved uh, being in a college. I loved um, the way chemistry was taught and, uh, um, and I loved the experience. And so I always dreamt of the opportunity to maybe one day come back and do a PhD, who knows? And uh, and I was fortunate to get a studentship to do that um, uh, with the Gates Cambridge Scholarship. Uh, and so then I, I didn't think twice. And yeah. uh, and then at that point, 
yeah, my mom was really upset because she thought I would never come back. I told her <laughs> it's only three years, but I think they sensed that I would not come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still here in the UK. Yes. Um, so what, what was your PhD looking at then? Yes. Yeah, so, so my PhD was about uh, novel approaches um, to study uh, protein-ligand interactions, mm-hmm. um, novel fragment-based approaches. And so um, um, I did my PhD with uh, Professor Chris Abel, one mm-hmm. of the co-founder of Astix uh, yeah. at the time technology. And, and so, uh, so really the, the aim of the project was to explore a variety of biophysical techniques uh, to study uh, how fragments and small molecules in general bind to protein and particularly to study weak interactions. So at the time in the field of fragment-based screening, um, there were typically two main areas. It was X-ray crystallography and Astix was a pioneering company for that. The idea being to soak a cocktail of small molecule called fragments, meaning very small, to see what they would bind to protein and then use that information to to build uh, higher affinity inhibitors or ligands. Another approach was the NMR approach pioneered by Steve Fezzik. So the idea of my project was to explore uh, alternative uh, technologies, alternative methods Mm -hmm. uh, to look at the protein ligand binding equilibria. Uh, So including isothermal titration calorimetry, surface plasma resonance, mass spectrometry, Um, and so so you learned a lot of techniques. I learned a lot of yeah. techniques and I learned a lot of um, actually the process of, um, you know, how do you actually uh, think about identifying novel chemical matter and how do you think about it in the context of what the, industry, the pharmaceutical industry uh, would ultimately require uh, for developing new drugs Yeah, okay. and, and how that process, that early process is so important uh, to sort of, uh, catalyze then the rest of the drug discovery process, and so um, yeah, it was a, it was exciting time for the field. Yeah, good PhD. Um, so Chris Abel's involvement then in um, starting Aztex was this something that appealed to you? Kind of this entrepreneurial side. Yes. Did that was that something that you kind of that excited you? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, having the opportunity to do a PhD. Uh, in collaboration with, uh, uh, at the time, a biotech company, I considered a biotech company, uh, which had obviously the, clearly the potential to grow into a larger drug discovery uh, uh, company, uh, was uh, really appealing to me. And and in fact, uh, it's something that uh, has been a continuum for me in my career already uh, back in Florence during my internship with uh, uh, with Cherm, Ivano Bertini was uh, keen to do a startup, mm. uh, and in fact he he created a startup called um, Giotto uh, Biotech, and uh, and I remember that he was keen for me to be involved, and I said, well, I'm just a student, I want to <laughs> learn, I want to I want to continue to to do to do research, um, but you know that that process of um, of, of um, university academic research potentially catalyzing the starting up of of new venture, captivating my imagination. And then um, when I had the opportunity to do the PhD with Astex and actually try it for real uh, in real life, uh, and how my PhD sort of aligned or overlapped to 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 what the company was doing was was uh, definitely very inspiring. And 
and and again, it's it's another example of how uh, you know your experiences as a student with your mentors and with your supervisors have, uh, can have a tremendous impact on how you think and how you potentially develop your own career. And you might not imagine or or realize that, but they're definitely there. And and that's certainly been the case for me as I then later on got involved in more and more of uh, of company formations and ultimately com- culminating in me spinning out Amphista. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, let's get let's get to that in a in a second. So let, let's start in by kind of your transition into the field of targeted protein degradation. So there'll be a lot of listeners who are very familiar with with TPD on this podcast, and some people who will know what a protac is. But maybe you could give just a quick introduction to uh, to targeted protein degradation and what a protac is. Sure. So, um, so this is a, a really exciting new approach to develop drugs. And so unlike conventional drugs that um, typically block a target, uh, for example, an enzyme, they bind to the active site and they uh, inhibit the activity of that protein or they block a specific interaction of that protein. We often call them inhibitors or antagonists or blockers. With targeted protein degradation, um, we do something very different. Uh, And so with our molecules, we can bind anywhere on the target protein. It doesn't have to be the active site. And then uh, what that molecule uh, then does is it uh, hooks up to a different protein that is part of the uh, native uh, sort of natural mechanism that uh, nature has evolved to degrade protein is called the, the most widely used is it it's called the ubiquitin proteasome system uh, and now we bring together our target to that key protein on the ubiquitin proteasome system um, it's typically a, a so-called e3 ligase uh, and so we now recruit them into proximity we actually form what we call a ternary complex we bring these two together and now that protein is uh, destined for destruction because the enzyme now transfer a tag to it. It's called ubiquitin, and that tag marks the protein for degradation and for destruction. So it's completely different. Uh, we don't block the target. We actually very rapidly uh, degrade it inside the cell. And a question I have to ask, Alessio, is do you call it ubiquitination or ubiquitilation? Oh, um, uh I'm agnostic. Uh, both both <laughs> words are, are are totally correct. Yeah. Uh, but it, yes, if you ask me, I would normally say ubiquitination. Yes. Ubiquitination. <laughs> I've seen debates on Twitter about uh, no, this, but both are correct. Both, okay. both, both are correct. Yes. <laughs> so, what catalyzed your um, entry into into this? Was there a, a specific moment during your time in Cambridge where you you heard about this? Yes, yeah, so uh, so I, I, I training in fragment-based drug design. Uh, obviously, I, I had a deep interest in developing molecules that bound to proteins, and um, and so I had been exposed to the concept of fragment linking, where you have two ligands that bind on the target protein and you connect them together uh, to improve your affinity. Uh, but we were always been thinking about you know one molecule that bound to one target. And the molecules that we were developing had to be uh, to target a functional site to be uh, biologically active, so so-called inhibitors. And so, as as I was, you know, scouting for new ideas and always in the hunt to 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 think about how this approach could be applied 
to something different. Uh, then one day I met Craig Cruz at a conference. Uh, we were both uh, speaking at this meeting. And uh, and so, you know, uh, it was, I guess, one of those, uh, it wasn't quite a back of... Uh, uh, a back of, back a, of a napkin, a, of a napkin uh, <laughs> conversation. I don't think, I, I don't recall us, uh, either of us using that, but we certainly had uh, um, very exciting conversations at dinner and we both uh, enjoyed our respective uh, uh, lectures. And so, you know, I learned a bit from his talk about this idea of Protax that I had not uh, uh, heard about before. Um, and uh, and so you know he heard about my work from fragment based uh, drug discovery and we decided to team up and uh, so I decided to visit his lab which was actually something I always wanted to go to go to go to the US and spend some time there to learn about uh, firsthand how 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 it is to do science in the US um, and that uh, spurred uh, the start of a of a collaboration that the rest is history led to the development uh, using fragment-based drug design of a VHL ligand, which have been very important uh, contribution to the field of Protax. Yeah, so there's some, there's some papers then that were kind of uh, around that time, I presume, around 2012 yeah. that you publish on these yeah. um, small molecule ligands that, that bind to yes. um, VHL. And the thought was, okay, we're going to make these small molecules and they're going to we're going to have to functionalize them. We're going to be able to degrade proteins with, with VHL. So, so what was the kind of order that things happened? When did you finally kind of get a, a protect that you could use your new ligands for, for VHL and successfully degrade a protein? Yes. So, um, so this is, this is where, uh, you know, uh, Craig and I encountered quite a lot of resistance, right? In the field, a lot of people thought, you know, this is not going to work. And, uh, and one of the, you know, we, we always believed that if we could get good quality molecules, uh, uh, we would get there. And um, because until then, the field had used peptides and, uh, uh, and it was clear we needed to move away from it. But there was always the key question, um, will this ever work? You know, what affinity do you need? What kind of chemical uh, structure do you need? And we, so we didn't know the answer to this. I guess, we, you know, we just got excited about the opportunity to build with good quality molecules. And I uh, still remember the day when uh, um, a postdoc in my lab, Ingevam Molde, sold the first ever uh, structure with the ligand bound where we could see the electron density <laughs> feeling exactly where we expected it to be. Um, and that was kind of really eureka moment. It really motivated us and got us thinking, hey, you know, we, we now we're in the right track. And so I think, I think it's, um, um, you know, when, when you reflect back on, on these and, and many other examples of success, uh, scientific stories, uh, that come from, from my group and, uh, and, and, and breakthrough discoveries, uh, I suppose it, it's, it's always hard to absolutely exactly imagine uh, where you might be, and you, you know you, ha you have you have to sort of believe that you can get there, and then you just take one step at a time. Uh, because if you think too hard about what things might be, you might not actually uh, ever get there, and and you might prevent yourself from from making from making the key discoveries. Sometimes it's just about asking the next question and say, okay, where where can we go next? And so in that particular case, you know, we, we, we knew um, that hydroxyproline was, a, was a, a key starting point because that's what nature had evolved. 
and uh, and so we actually uh, really struggled to detect the binding, but we had the confidence that if we could grow enough around it, it would it would bind. And so when we uh, demonstrated that, then the next question was, uh, at what point uh, could we actually believe that these compounds have have legs and could be used? Uh, for the protac and and one of the things that uh, was good to have was uh, this was a known ligase with a known substrate so we could test whether the compound could be active inside the cell and um, and it, it was only until we developed compounds that could break the barrier of nanomolar uh, binding affinity uh, that uh, uh, we we really started to convince ourselves uh, that uh, that you know we 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 could really have molecules that could be could be useful for protac design, and then we started making protacs. And uh, in my lab, uh, that uh, was a eureka moment when we made the compound MZ one, uh, yeah. a simple PEG free linker that linked our now optimized DHL ligand, which we had just showed that we could detect uh, uh, in its own right activity inside the cell. Uh, linked to another ligand uh, that we were working in the lab for a different target. So, so you know, you always you always start where you're at, and you look at you look at what you can do to move things uh, uh, step by step. I think it's uh, it's the lessons I've learned. Yeah, incremental, one step at a time. Exactly, and I think we we fool ourselves that science is you know is a big leap. And, uh, you know, you wake up one morning and you discover this huge, big leap that now takes you to Mars. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work like yeah. that. And if, you ex- and if you expect or try to do that, you won't get to Mars and you'll get disappointed. And so, um, uh, and so uh, I think one step at a time is a, is a good advice I've learned. Yeah. Okay, so your MZ1 publication, MZ1 is one of the most widely cited protax if not the most um so was this why you're still at cambridge or did you no you'd moved now yes exactly it had moved already uh, by uh, well over a year yeah. in in dundee uh, and so actually this uh, in a few in a few days time it will be exactly 10 years that, 10 year anniversary uh, that, uh, that <laughs> congratulations at, at dundee. thank you <laughs> yes we moved my lab from cambridge in the beginning of april 2013 yeah yeah. Okay. Um, and why Dundee then? So Dundee, I mean, now very different since, you know, it, it's on the biotech map. Um, but why Dundee at the time? What made you move? Yes. Uh, again, it was that intuition and that uh, projection that our science could uh, could go much deeper and could go in a, in a new, brand new direction. And um um, it was a combination of uh, being a fantastic place uh, for science, uh, a very strong uh, institute um, where there were lots and lots of like-minded colleagues uh, who um, I could talk to and that, who were interested about what we were doing and that I could see that we could work together and collaborate, a very collegiate environment, um, a very supportive environment. Um, but also an environment uh, with uh, with very uh, very high high end uh, sort of facilities and and very well resources, so that we could really take our science now to the next level. Uh, also, uh, um, it plays very strong in biology, and so being a chemist and 
And so having been for many years in a traditional chemistry department, I always felt that perhaps uh, there was a kind of glass ceiling uh, and we couldn't really go into biology ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I thought coming to Dundee, we would have that opportunity and it turned out to be the case. But also it's an amazing place to live. It's an amazing, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful city and a beautiful part of the, uh, of Scotland and of the UK. And, uh, and I just fell in love when I visited and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, um, you know, I've never looked back. Yeah, agreed. And I'll say again, it's great to, great to be here. I love coming up to Scotland and Dundee is, is gorgeous. Uh, very jealous you get to live up here. You're always welcome anytime. <laughs> Thanks, Alessia. Okay, so let's, you're here now then in Dundee, you've got your, your own group. So what I'd like to try and understand in, and of course this podcast is called Back of the Napkin, is how you come up and how you innovate and furthermore, how you inspire your group to, to think and innovate as well. So yeah, what, what, what can you say to, to that? Oh boy, that's a, that's a million dollar question. Yeah. You know, I, I think... I think um, there isn't a, a, a you know a fixed recipe. There isn't a um, you know a protocol to follow, um, and there's no question that you know different individual uh, would give different answers. Different people innovate in different ways, but um, but I certainly um, have learned that the best way to innovate is. Um, you know, is is keep an open mind, keep thinking about what you do, um, and uh, and always uh, have an open mind for um, uh, for, for maybe when when uh, you you see unexpected results. Uh, some our best projects and our best innovations have come most of the time from you know unexpected, surprising results. We just published a story which has come completely from an unexpected, surprising result where we had the Protac supposed to work for a particular ligase. When we tested it on the knockout cell line that didn't have that ligase, it was still working. That spurred a completely new project, right? So, uh, so I think I think that's uh, that's the best way to innovate. Mm-hmm. Um, and to pursue and formulate new ideas. Um, but of course, at the end, you always have to have a, a, a good vision of where, where you're, where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do and, and, and try to stay on track. Um, so that perhaps these surprising unexpected results still, uh, still take you in a slightly off path, but it's still part of what mm. you're doing. Uh, cause otherwise it, this could just be distractions. If that makes sense. Yeah. So you've got a better chance of finding something if you're in a kind of defined space looking for it. Correct. And, and uh, you know, we often hear that, you know, luck meets the prepared mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's very true. You sort of you, you sort of search your luck. And so, you know, activity is really important. Uh, you know, you can you can think deeply about how to do experiments or what to do and try to be perfect. And so, sometimes you just have to get on them obviously carefully designed experiments are very important with the right controls and uh, by no means uh, 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 that's that's really important in science Uh, but sometimes don't overthink too much and just uh, get on and do what you can Mm -hmm. um, with what you've got I think it's it's a really important with a long vision with a long view 
of where you might you might go uh, with your research program in a way that is exciting and is not and is not sort of boring. Yeah. And that excitement comes from doing things differently or trying things that are maybe hard that are that are challenging. Try to tackle some challenges. Um, um, but, but but still be very practical in what you can actually achieve with your science. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. So let's come on then to um, Amphista mm-hmm. Therapeutics. So uh, talk me through what what happened here. What what was the moment where you decided, okay, we we need to start a company. We've got something that um, yeah, we need to we need to turn into a company. Yes. How did this happen? Yes, uh, so maybe let me backtrack a little bit back to MZ1 because I think that's important. You know, when we discovered MZ1 uh, in the field, we had never seen a degrader that worked like that. And so that was really a eureka moment. Uh, you know, until then, we didn't know if we could degrade really a protein. We didn't know um, if we could degrade it that fast uh, at such low concentration, meaning that potently, you know, that efficiently. And particularly, um, as I was interested in studying the proteins degraded by MZ1 and engineering selectivity on that protein, now with MZ1, we observed that it degraded preferentially one of those proteins. And that was really exciting to us because it suggested, oh, we don't need to engineer that in. We can actually achieve it on, on the endogenous protein mm-hmm. with a small molecule. So, And the... the- Warhead ligand what couldn't wasn't selective. Wasn't selective exactly. Yeah. Absolutely, you got it. Yeah. So the, the warhead ligand was not a selective inhibitor. It could it w- it would block all those proteins equally. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly, when turned into a protac, into a degrader, and recruiting these additional ligase, it now proved to be more selective and degrade one of those proteins preferentially. And that was where the curiosity came, right? The unexpected result. Because you'd imagine it binds all the same, so it will degrade all the same. Yeah. Instead, it wasn't. And that's that's unexpected result motivated then a lot of work to try and figure out why that was. What made the compound so exquisitely specific? And that motivated then our work to, uh, to solve the structure of that ternary complex, which we published two years later. So the first time in the field that we saw a protac bound with both the ligase and the target protein simultaneously engaged. And that, uh, for the first time, gave us a glimpse of what that kind of species would look like, but it also really explained where that selectivity was coming from and what made this degrader so special. So now we're two years down the line from the discovery of MZ1 and that tipping point in the field. And, you know, before MZ1, as I said, you know, we didn't know if we could degrade, we didn't know what target could be degraded. And now we were starting to show that we could degrade more and more target, that we could make very good protacts um, uh, that were also quite specific and that were quite potent and they were active also in vivo. So, so there was that clear understanding that we could go uh, to all the way towards discovery, turning this molecule into drugs. However, um, sort of looking ahead, uh, it was clear we were all using VHL, the ligands uh, Craig and I discovered, uh, as well as a different compound, the compound for the E3 ligase cerebron. And so really the field had only two. And so one of the lessons I learned as a student uh, was in drug discovery, you know, you want to hedge your bets by maximizing your mechanisms. 
And the way to maximize your mechanism is, you know, you expand your chemistry um, and ideally you expand your biology. And so that was the idea with Amphista, you know, could we do targeted protein degradation? Uh, could we expand uh, the mechanism of targeted protein degradation um, by recruiting different different mechanism and could we do it differently than cerebellum and DHL? And that was that idea and uh, it nucleated uh, uh, the, the start of, a, of a, an exciting venture today, a company that is, gr- is growing really fast and, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's doing well. Fantastic. So did you have a kind of co-founder in this, in this process? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So we engaged with... Um, um, uh, Advent Life Sciences, uh-huh. um, so uh, very prestigious and very well-respected uh, VC, venture capitalist firm. And so we had lots and lots of conversations uh, with some key people uh, from them, one in particular, Steel Butcher. Um, and so he uh, ended up being co-founder. And then here within within Dundee, Mike Ferguson, who recruited me in Dundee, we, uh, you know, was very supportive. Uh, of his venture, and so he also became a co-founder, um, and so it was really the three of us um, who sort of acted as co-founder, mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, uh, you know it was a great opportunity to actually get on and do some science quickly in the lab, and so Adam wanted to move quickly, so they said, have, you know, have you got somebody in the lab who who could join this? And so you know, I spoke to. Two of my key postdocs who so were working on Prothex at the time, Andrea Scott, Andrea Testa, and, and Scott Hughes, and uh, you know it didn't take much persuasion to yeah. get them involved, um, and so they became essentially scientists number one and number two uh, by doing some of the early key experiments in the lab that demonstrated proof of concept for the work. So it was really the five of us were the key, key uh, initial people. Yeah. Great, and this kind of idea of becoming an entrepreneur then and starting a company how did you find this like was this was this something that came naturally to you or or was this a very different skill set that you had to kind of learn oh i mean um i guess it came naturally to me to you know pursue new ideas and to to um uh, to try and see if, if, if you know if, if there could some some valuable you know value proposition out mm-hmm. of our science as a as a way of obviously uh, pushing, uh, pushing the boundaries of, uh, of enter, you know, enterprise and commercialization. Um, uh, but, uh, but it wasn't something I had done before. Right. So, uh, so I knew uh, that excited me because I felt that this could be a journey where I could learn a lot and, uh, um, and hopefully that there could be something really good coming out of that. Um, but of course, I uh, I guess uh, there was an element of a maybe the you know being a bit crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so and so we sort of learned a bit on the ropes and learned uh, by doing it, and uh, and I'm 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 delighted to have gone through that process because I've really learned a lot about it. I've learned a lot about um, teamwork. I've learned a lot about what makes a good company. What makes a you know what what. What is needed to turn a you know an idea into something um, you know that 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 could 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 build a scientific enterprise behind, and that's certainly um, been extremely valuable in in my latest effort you know to to 
to found and start the new center targeted protein degradation here at Dundee. So let's talk about that then. And, you know, at first glance, you know, I haven't had the tour yet, but I'm very excited for it. Tell us about the new center. Yeah, so so the the new center uh, has really been motivated, you know, by by the desire to 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 create uh, an opportunity um, that really benefits uh, the whole, not just uh, not just uh, us here in Dundee, but benefit the whole community and the whole world in the, in you know in this new you know new field. Um, so. It, the sort of initial idea, uh, actually, that again came uh, really uh, on the back of the of the piece of paper. In that case, not an app, <laughs> um, but uh, exactly around um, four years ago. Mm-hmm. So, so we, I went uh, for lunch out, um, you know, on a Friday uh, with my wife uh, Chiara Magnacci. She's also a scientist. Uh, she's actually now here in Dundee, started, started her own group. And at the time she was in Oxford. And so, you know, we were commuting and uh, that weekend she was here in Dundee. So I thought, oh, let's go for lunch. And and actually my colleague, uh, Will Farnaby, who at the time was leading uh, the Protac uh, Drug Discovery Collaboration that um, um, I've started in, in, in my lab since 2016 um, and going still very strong, major part here of our, our efforts here at the, uh, at the center, uh, and himself as well now, actually a, princi- a new principal investigator. He's uh, just starting his group, and so uh, you know we went for lunch and chatting about one thing and another. And then on the way back, uh, you know, uh, it came to my mind that uh, I don't know the motivation of that uh, that you know we needed to do something uh, big and something that uh, the field would uh, you know was needed uh, was needing or that you know certainly would have would have been valuable. And so, so then when, when we came back uh, into my office, uh, you know, we sat there and said, hey, I really need to, to, let me think about this. I really need to scribble this. And um, we actually still have that piece of paper. You've been afraid, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, we're, we're basically framing it and I've showed it uh, internally. So, uh, uh, and the idea of creating again something that, uh, um, that which have an ambition to be like a beacon of innovation, but also uh, reimagining how academia can work together with the, the industry uh, to advance the field, but also accelerate how we progress um, uh, the medicines that the patient desperately needs, while at the same time tackling the key challenges uh, yeah, that emerge in the field as we try to do that. And it's really a realization that um, industry alone uh, typically can't do all of that. Uh, it certainly can't tackle the big challenges because they're so focused on delivering pipelines and delivering those medicines. And equally, uh, academia alone cannot, um, for various reasons, reasons of you know limited funding models, uh, but also uh, often... Uh, difficulties to really uh, tackle those challenges uh, where you don't have uh, the benefit of working close to industry and and be able to develop the translation. So having those two things together um, really enables uh, uh, the opportunity to tackle those challenges mm-hmm. and then accelerate everything that we can do. And uh, and that's the idea with the center, to basically get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Uh, academia and industry in one place uh, as as we like to say, you know, 
doing industry type uh, research um, with the resources and the focus on you know deliver fast delivery and and um, and uh, and milestone driven project, but without the constraints mm. of being in a, in a company. And uh, you know, having the academic freedom to pursue uh, new ideas and uh, um, and uh, also to follow your dreams, or when you see those eureka and unexpected results, then we can still do it, uh, but with the right resources so that you can do that quickly and you can do it properly. That's really the idea of the center. It, it sounds amazing, and I, there's nothing else really like this, right? It's like um, it's the way you describe it. Kind of reminds me of like an academic CRO or biotech company, academic labs, kind of everything just folded into to one that offers a really unique solution uh, in the field of targeted protein degradation. So, yeah, am- amazing. Very excited to see more of it, Alessia. Yes, correct. And, uh, and, and also the realization that, um, you know, to really be innovative and to really um, enable all of these things that we just talked about that we all want, uh, there are two key features uh, that we've learned are really important uh, for how you build, you know, a team and really the working model that we have. One is uh, being multidisciplinary, so you have to have access uh, to some key fundamental core expertise in certain areas. That doesn't mean that you need to do everything. Uh, so you know, you still allows you to be focused, but you definitely need to be as multidisciplinary as you can. And certainly for a fundamental translational chemical biology, we've identified key free areas, uh, key free pillars of what we do, which is chemistry, structural biology, biophysics, and, and cell biology. So these key free areas, uh, you, need to, you need to be able uh, to have a multidisciplinarity, which then means diversity in the people, Mm-hmm. Um, and so we thrive in uh, in a diverse environment and diversity at all levels, but also certainly diversity of backgrounds, um, so that then people are encouraged to collaborate, they're encouraged to learn from each other, and they're encouraged also um, to uh, you know to inspire each other. And I think that aspect of collaboration is really important. We collaborate widely, obviously internally amongst ourselves, and that's really important. But but actually also with the rest of the world, we collaborate with lots of companies such as Stokers Biotechnic. <laughs> We've had long-standing collaboration, <laughs> collaboration um, um, activities and and uh, and programs. And uh, we're excited to have you visit us to, today and tomorrow. So we'll talk a lot more about how we can continue to innovate and in how we collaborate together, but collaborate with many other partners, but also collaborate with many other academic groups um, uh, widely. And we like to work with like-minded people that mm-hmm. share our our passion for science and our goal to you know to to make new discoveries. Um, and you know that innovation on how we we collaborate is also the realization that you know you can't know it all yourself, and you always mm-hmm. learn something new when you work with somebody. Yeah, when we walk down the road, just arriving here, it's written in big on the um, on the on the building. That, is this kind of your your motto? What 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 is it? Yes, correct. So innovate, collaborate, inspire. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Three very important pillars. Yes. Okay, Alessia, we're kind of running out of time here, but we like to do a fun to finish mm-hmm. feature on the podcast. So I have devised a bit of a, a guessing game uh-huh. for you to have a, a go at that's kind of built around 
um, the idea of being innovators and um, inventors, this kind of thing. So the game I've come up with is I've looked for some inventions that are, are real. Um, what I'm going to do is describe these inventions to you. Uh, and I'd like you to guess if these have been patented, if the inventor decided to patent this oh. work. There's some uh, some kind of bizarre ones in here, but some science ones as well. So it's a, a good mix, but it'll be interesting to oh, see. Interesting. And yeah. there is a right answer. Right? Yeah, there is, a, there is a right answer. Okay, gosh, right. I'm pretty okay. bad at guessing. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's start with number one then. So uh, monoclonal antibodies. Oh, how interesting. Um I believe I believe that was patented. Yes, famously not patented. All oh, right, there you go. You see. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is kind of a bit of a, a trick one. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, discovered by Caesar Milstein and, and George Collar in 1975 in Cambridge, uh, and they were told by their um, IP office that they couldn't identify any immediate applications right. of this. Right. So <laughs> yeah. Yes. Ouch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, the next one. More common than we would like to think. Mm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, it often is the case that very early ideas uh, meet with uh, resistance or skepticism. Yeah. And often that means that uh, that skepticism leads to inaction on normal processes that you would do to to catalyze the innovation that to come out of that idea, like patenting, yeah. A, a very good point, and I think it's something that you know really needs to be encouraged to you know inspire creative thinking. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, next one, slightly more um, bizarre than the first one, uh, a marine mammal communication device. So this being a device that lets you talk to whales and dolphins, do you think this is something that has been patented? Oh gosh, I'm going to be embarrassing myself at this podcast because I'm going to get them all wrong. Um, well, I'm going to stick with my guns and say that this in instead was patented. It, correct. Ah, yeah, it was go. by the Walt Disney Corporation. Right. They, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I did have a quick look at this this patent, and it has the the graph on there is yeah. uh, it, it's a keyboard sunk in the water that effectively allows whales and dolphins to right. to communicate. Right. Uh, okay, uh, next one. Ice cream gloves. Oh my God. Can you actually patent something like that? I guess you <laughs> could. But for what purpose? Well, th there's a story to kind of go behind this. Um, and, okay, so I'll, I'll go into it a bit more. It was famously pitched by Ali G to Donald Trump um, <laughs> when he tried to convince him um, to invest into his idea to stop ice cream getting on his hands while he's eating his... Um... Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I really hope this wasn't patented, but it probably was. I don't know. Yes. Yeah, no, no you're patented. right. Yeah, not uh, not patented, but a very funny... Uh, okay, I'm back on got... track. Yeah. yeah, you're doing well. Two out of three. <laughs> okay, we've got two more. Oh, yeah, gosh. Right. I could still lose miserably. Next yes. one <laughs> is the beer brella. This is an umbrella that attaches to your beer and keeps it cold. Oh boy, I mean, look, this sounds such a crazy um, idea with almost no practical uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> practical application whatsoever, but surely it must have been patented. Yeah, <laughs> correct, spot on. <laughs> Filed in 2001, so off patent now, so we could make Beerbrella similars if we, if we wanted to. If we could yeah. do a generics <laughs> yeah. company now, right? Okay. Uh, all right, last one, Alessio. Um, 
So this is a device, an apparatus for facilitating the birth of a child by centrifugal force. Kind of terrifying. Wow. Well, um, this this also sounds very complicated. So I'd be tempted to say it must have been patented, but there's something that tells me that it wasn't patented for whatever reason. What are you going to go for? Uh, not patented. Not it was patented. It was. It, it was <laughs> patented. And uh, <laughs> this is this is something terrifying. The device describes something that can get up to about. 5G's in uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> centrifugal force, um, uh -huh. having the potential to make childbirth less magical. But um, yeah, I think this all kind of shows that innovation has no limits. No, um, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Not bad, actually. Three out of five. Three out of so five. I, I think that's yeah, yeah, uh, very commendable. Yeah, I, I win on the final set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alessia, before we finish, so... As you know, the podcast is called Back of the Napkin. We ask every guest to do their own personalized sketch on our own podcast branded napkin. So uh, at some point today, I'm going to be passing you one of these for you to put your stamp on so that we can put it in the um, podcast memorabilia and pin it on our wall. And uh, yeah, it will be kind of uh, a nice reminder of this, uh, of this episode. Fantastic. I look forward to it. So thank you so much. I've so thoroughly enjoyed it and I uh, so appreciate the opportunity to chat with, with you and uh, I look forward to some scribbling on the napkins. <laughs> Fantastic. And thanks for all the listeners and all the, uh, yeah. all the audience. Yeah. How can listeners follow you? You're on socials, right? Uh, yes. So, um, um, so I'm on social media, on Twitter, uh, at uh, Alessio Ciulli, also on LinkedIn. Um, and then we also have a, a, a group website, a research group website, as well as a new Center for Targeted Protein Degradation website, uh, CETPD. So if you Google CETPD, Dundee, you'll find it. Perfect. We'll stick all these in the show notes as well. So Fantastic. easy for people to find. Good. Thanks so much, Alessio. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Back of the Napkin. To hear more stories of innovation and discovery just like this, subscribe to Back of the Napkin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, colleagues, or lab mates. Back of the Napkin is made possible by Biotechni, where science intersects innovation. Biotechni is a supplier of high quality and innovative tools for life science research, therapeutic manufacturing, clinical diagnostics, and more. They encompass brands like R&D Systems, Tocris Bioscience, Nervous Biologicals, Protein Simple, Advanced Cell Diagnostics, Exosome Diagnostics, and a surgeon to name some. To learn more, you can visit the website at biotechni.com. That's bio-techni.com dot com.